You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon, this is Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, my name is Nick, I'm your host for this afternoon, but we do have uh, some special guests in the studio, which we'll get to in just a moment. But uh, before I do, this week uh, there is an event uh, on Tuesday, which is June 26th. Uh, June 26th, uh, by the United Nations, is the International Day Against Drug tra- Trafficking. It's a, it's a day to kind of glorify the prohibition mentality and it's a day that um, some countries around the world uh, have taken to doing uh, executions including public executions of people accused of uh, or uh, uh, tried of, uh, of drug crimes and it will be happening again this year in some parts of the world but in other parts of the world, we're standing with a different campaign, and that's Support Don't Punish. And Support Don't Punish is a campaign um, that is seeking to, uh, well, for one, end the death penalty in places where um, they still have the death penalty for these sorts of crimes, but also to move toward uh, a system that aims to support people who struggle with addiction problems rather than punish them, which is proven to be effective at uh, uh, reducing the harms that people experience if they do use a uh, substance of one kind. So that's what, I mean, what we're trying to get at here is that just because somebody uses a drug doesn't mean uh, that they they need to be uh, punished endlessly. It's not going to make them better. It's not going to make anyone else better. So the Support Don't Punish Day event is on Tuesday at Melbourne Town Hall. You can buy tickets if you head to uh, drugpolicy.org.au or just look up Support Don't Punish Melbourne Town Hall event on Facebook. A uh, number of organisations will be there uh, with tables and uh, speakers. There's eight speakers, including Tony Trimmingham uh, from Family Drug Support, Michael Short from The Age, uh, Dr Stefan uh, Grunet from Odyssey House, Sam Biondo from the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, Greg Denham from uh, Yarra Drug and Health Forum, uh, Steph Genetis from Dancewise for the Dancewise program, uh, Nick Kent from Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia, and I will be hosting the event, um, which has also been strongly supported by Drug Policy Australia and Greg Chip, uh, also there to talk with us. So it should be a pretty fantastic evening. Uh, tickets, I think, are between seven and fifteen depending on uh, what kind of ticket you want to buy. Uh, and again, support Don't Punish Melbourne Town Hall if you find it on Facebook or head to drugpolicy.org.au. Uh, thank you. Uh, I think I already said thank you to Freedom of Species, but if I didn't, they will be back next week from 1 o'clock and uh, you can find more of them at 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Freedom of Species uh, web uh, page and you can find their podcast too. And while you're there, also find our podcast. Um, finally, uh, Radiothon. Radiothon was last week, but we still are $100,000 off our target of 250000 which means we've already raised 150000 so more than halfway there, but we are still looking for any little bits um, that can be donated. Also wanted to say a big thank you to the crew uh, from Grassroots Gathering and the Victorian Socialists who held a uh, pill testing fundraiser and raised uh, two, uh, 200 and. $20, I think it was, towards 3CR and towards Encyclopedia, and also 700 for 
DanceWise for the DanceWise program who have been uh, who are out there uh, speaking with people all the time about um, issues around drugs and educating around uh, things like pill testing as well. Uh, now I want to introduce our special panel for this afternoon. Uh, we have Chloe from SSDP Australia. How are you doing, Chloe? Hey, Nick. Good, thanks. Thanks for having us. That's all right. And I also have Jane and Sarah. Uh, not their real names. These are your names for this afternoon. Um, but welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before we uh, get into it, uh, Jane, I think you've got some words to say because of some of the content we're going to be hearing. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to give a little bit of forewarning um, that some of the content in what we'll be discussing today is a bit sensitive. And for anyone who feels that they would like some support with any of the issues we talk about today, um, they can contact DirectLine, which is a confidential alcohol and drug counselling and referral service in Victoria, and that number is one eight hundred triple eight two three six. Thank you. All right, should we jump into the first segment? Yep. Yep. Get it underway. This is <laughs> uh, this was recorded a little little while ago, but you're um, yeah going to hear some interesting things. Hi, I'm Chloe the former secretary of SSDP Australia. What you're about to hear are the voices of Jane and Sarah sharing their experiences of drug use and abuse with Dr Kat Daly from RMIT University. Kat has written a book titled Youth and Substance Abuse. Look for it at your favourite bookseller. Visit ssdp.org.au for more. My role here today is really just to help facilitate what I'm expecting to be a really great discussion with Sarah and Jane. I guess when we, when we talk about, you know, drug use, people always assume it's problematic. But, you know, when you think about it and when you look at the stats, we know that most young people, you know, use drugs and never have a problem. In fact, most people will, you know, use alcohol and other drugs at some point in their life and never have a problem. So it's not drug use alone that causes a problem. And it's also not that people who have a problem can only use problematically. Like there's more of a continuum between, you know, use and abuse. What do you think maybe are some of the drivers that lead to people using substances problematically? For me, when it comes to recreational substance use or just substance use and uh, I guess substance abuse, uh, there are a variety of factors involved. Um, on one hand, we have re recreational use, so using alcohol or other drugs with friends um, in a social setting, and it's not problematic. And then there's also um, the element of self-medication, and when that becomes problematic as well. So I started using cannabis and alcohol when I was about 13. And at that time, there was no element there for me to use with friends um, from the get-go. Um, after being introduced to cannabis in particular, I discovered what a big impact it had on reducing my anxiety. So I grew up quite an anxious child and I suffered a lot of panic attacks um, going to sleep. And I didn't understand what mental health, mental back then really, like I knew that mental illness existed, but it was quite stigmatised and it seemed uh, something that um, kind of belonged to other people and not to me. And so all I knew was that cannabis made me feel better. So uh, whilst it could be seen in some ways as recreational because I enjoyed being high and I had fun doing, doing it, it quickly became a crutch that I needed to prevent bad feelings. And 
And then as I got older, you know, 14, uh, 15 onwards, I had to use, I couldn't not use the drug because without it, I couldn't deal with um, the distress that I was feeling. And, you know, that kind of leads a little bit into distress intolerance as well. So not having the tools there to moderate my own emotions and not having um, what I needed to deal with uh, my anxiety and my ability to cope. So, um, and that, you know, soon morphed into other drugs. So it wasn't uh, just cannabis. I went to detox and I, um, with uh, youth support and advocacy services, and I um, overcame that addiction to that drug or that dependence really on that drug. Um, and it soon just became other drugs that I was using or it became things like some harm. So it just, it was more a coping mechanism that I was seeking rather than a drug itself. Jane, do you want to tell us a little bit about your own thoughts on the same issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel uh, much like Sarah, my sort of uh, experience or relationship with alcohol and substance use, um, I guess if we are speaking in terms of a continuum between recreational and problematic, um, always did have to sort of do with my mental health and my anxiety and you know, whether it was more of a social thing or whether it was to sort of um, help me cope with something that I wasn't otherwise coping with. Um, so, yeah, when I first started um, experimenting with substances, I was probably about 15, started drinking and um, using a bit of marijuana and then eventually began to experiment with psychedelics. Um, I found that at the time I wasn't overly happy in my environment and I didn't realize how much uh, that was impacting on my mental health and self-image. And yeah, it was sort of a lack of understanding of my own sort of mental health that would I guess sort of make you think that my substance use was just solely becoming problematic um, rather than it being sort of a factor of some of unaddressed mental health issues. Um, I found that later in life I still continued to uh, gravitate to social circles where there was recreational substance use and drinking. I've always enjoyed the social side of recreational use and going out for drinks with friends um, as quite a sometimes anxious person it was you know a social aid in some ways that would allow me to be more outgoing and meet more people than I usually would um, I think through all this it just um, in terms of uh, recreational use to substance abuse or problematic use. In my experience, what I really found was that it was never necessarily the substance use in isolation, but more so the external factors in my life. Um, in times where maybe I was not so 
in control or using substances or drinking in a very healthy way, um, quite often it's because I had underlying factors. Um, I didn't have support networks at the time. Um, my mental health literacy was very low. I didn't understand what I was actually experiencing. Um, and in turn, I found that sort of factors that enabled, um, you know, healthy recreational use in whatever way um, was protective factors like having a good social support network, like having mental health and health literacy and supports and meaning in life, you know, when you have things to do, I always found myself to be in a lot better headspace because, you know, it's all to do with self-efficacy and the better you feel about yourself, the easier it is to sort of function, I guess, in a non-problematic manner. So I guess everyone's probably familiar with the idea of risk factors and, you know, psychologists and social workers tend to use it a lot to identify people at risk and usually it's, you know, to help inform early intervention and prevention practices and policies. Um, in recent times, there's been some work that started to look at the notion of risk factors and question how helpful they are. Because um, usually they're too broad. Usually they apply to far more people than are actually likely to be at risk. Often these risk factors can't be changed, you know. So if a risk factor is that you're raised in poverty, you can't suddenly go back to childhood and not be raised in poverty. But what we've come to see is that what's referred to as protective factors, so this idea of things that help um, people do okay despite adversity. So it's kind of acknowledging that adversity, people will be confronted with adversity. What makes some people cope better than others? And often it's that they have no fewer risk factors than anybody else, but that they have protective factors. So the things that, you know, you were mentioning, so access to education or social supports or meaningful daily activity, whether it be school or work or volunteering or just something that makes them feel like they've got something meaning to do, meaningful to do each day. Having, you know, healthy relationships with friends and family and partners. What both of you um, raised in talking about that substance use, substance abuse kind of continuum was the you both tended to pick up on substance use being quite helpful for mental health symptoms and um, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more about that but one of the things that I was you know conscious of when I was hearing you speak was that you both of you seem to have a lot of insight um, into that and one of the things that I was curious about is has that insight come with the benefit of hindsight or were you conscious of it at the time? The connection between, uh, you know, mental health in terms of you know, risk and protective factors is really quite evident. Um, you know, clearly in my case, drug dependence uh, was born from an ability, inability to manage my distress. And, and that, you know, came from those risk factors of, you know, poverty and, um, kind of uh, transient homelessness and um, having, you know, anxiety. But it came also from the inability to understand how to regulate 
um, my own emotions and how to cope with my own emotions. And so um, in terms of being aware of whether, you know, it's, if it's in hindsight that I recognise that, at the time it just seemed like, a, in a sense, some uh, Pavlovian conditioning. So I just knew that doing this thing made me feel better. Um, and it's only as you move your way through substance abuse um, that you become aware that the cost-benefit ratio doesn't weigh up. So whilst a substance might immediately alleviate symptoms, um, it often then also ends up exacerbating those previous, those mental health uh, symptoms that you were trying to deal with to begin with. Um, so, you know, in some senses, you understand that it's self-medication, but I don't think that you consciously uh, are aware of that. You just, you know, as I was saying, like, um, you know, we do have like this cultural idea still that it's fine. Like if you have a hard day, you know, you have a drink, you have a glass of wine um, and that's an acceptable cultural norm. That, you know, like you need a drink. And even in TV, when people have had, you know, a stressful situation, they light a cigarette or they have a, you know, a shot of bourbon. And so it becomes very entrenched that obviously, you know, we do turn to um, ways of coping um, with regulating our emotions that are, you know, that are chemically based. Um, but yeah, so I don't know uh, if that awareness of self-medication really came about because uh, for a long time, because at the time when I entered into youth services, there wasn't, uh, Headspace wasn't available and it wasn't connected uh, to use substance abuse services at the time. And there wasn't a very clear understanding of dual diagnosis or, um, so it took a little bit for me to address my mental health. So I'd gone into detox at age 17 and it wasn't until age 20 or uh, around 2021 20, that I then engaged in mental health um, services and addressing those mental health issues. So, yeah, I don't think that I really made that connection until until then um, at all. And then identifying those protective factors and understanding how to cope with my own emotions still didn't come, you know, until in my early 20s when I started understanding uh, about, you know, things like mindfulness and uh, my own potential to regulate my emotions and and understanding that cost benefit you know ratio like self medication might have seemed like a great idea and it, it seemed like a very common sense idea to take a sedative of some description or of any description even if it wasn't a sedative any drug that regulated my emotions for me seemed like a pretty reasonable decision for me at the time and it wasn't until later that I understood uh, the benefits of being able to uh, manage your own mental health symptoms that I became more aware of that problem with self-medication that I'd had growing up. Yeah. And I think we just really wanted to use this opportunity to highlight the fact that what Jane and Sarah are talking about is gendered. And with the recent death and rape of Eurydice Dixon, we would really like to talk a little bit more about that. And that when women are using drugs, if that be recreationally or otherwise, they are experiencing an increased vulnerability. Yeah, gender violence impacts women in such a multifaceted way. Eurydice had her life taken from her in one moment in a park, though I'm sure she, as all women do, 
have experienced gendered abuse of some sort form beforehand. Um, as I was talking about with my own form of self-medication, I was saying that I often experienced panic attacks at night and I had a lot of uh, anxiety as a child. And what wasn't mentioned was that throughout my childhood I had had predatory males coming into my life, um, whether they be at home, whether they be friends of the family, or whether they just be a random stranger in the park who um, had decided to sexualise me at age seven. I often joke to friends that at a certain point in my childhood I'd become pedophile savvy and people seemed to like be shocked at this and I just thought it was kind of normal and par for the course that young women become pedophile savvy um, you know because men sometimes would try and bribe you with money as a child to perform sexual acts and at some point I realised that you know I could probably blackmail them and say well give me the money or I'll tell on you um, you know to getting some kind of control back from the situation I guess but at the same time it obviously led to you know feeling unsafe all the time growing up just not feeling that you were ever quite secure um and you're in a man's world as a child um, and as a female so you know gendered vulnerability is a massive issue that contributes to mental health we say that um you know substance abuse disorders um aren't the cause of mental illness that they're a symptom of but likewise we could say that mental illness is a symptom of a broader cultural issue of a broader gendered issue particularly it was for me that a lot of the trauma and anxiety that I'd suffered had come from um, targeting me you know um, due to my gender so and it's almost as though women have to experience like a double discrimination in the sense that you know we deal with uh, gender inequity every day and then on top of that we have to deal with you know, being identified as somebody who might be, you know, uh, like less worthy because of their drug use as well. So then all of a sudden we have, you know, a whole lot of other things to deal with that maybe, you know, a lot of men don't necessarily have to think about or deal with. Yeah, there's that common yeah. trope that, yeah, young women fall into when they're, um, you know, reach adolescence of substance abusing and then being seen as lesser. And um, if they're acting out as well, they've got that double mm. Um, mm. target on Absolutely. their head. Yeah. Absolutely. Um <clears throat> there, that's really good points and even like um, the fact that something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is the, just the gendered vulnerability of women and feminine identifying individuals um, when engaging in sort of any form of substance use and that includes recreationally um, and that comes into you know safety um, at festivals, clubs and events and especially you know, on the way home. And I think this has played such a huge part of my lived experience and the lived experience of so many females um, that I know in the fact that, you know, you want to go out and have a good time and feel safe. But a lot of the time, the systems that are currently in place to create these safe spaces um, don't always support us. And there's this common discourse at the moment of women need to be aware and responsible for their safety. But it's a bit of a conundrum because we try... Um, but we cannot guarantee our own safety unless everyone helps us create this space. Like, you know, harm reduction needs to also include this and mean that these spaces are supportive of women. And, yeah, like, um, we can go out to a club and get harassed. We can be harassed by security at a club. And then when we try and get 
an Uber or a cab home, <clears throat> sorry, um, it's known that women face harassment and sexual assault in these spaces as well. So what are we really supposed to do apart from, you know, get a trusted male to escort us all the way home or carry pepper spray, which really I don't think any of us want to do. Yeah, the amount of times I've been harassed in a cab, getting yeah. a cab home. So, I mean, what, what, how far do we have to go um, with that responsibility? Like, there's only so much we can do. I guess, you know, they might argue that it's... It's, it's kind of shaming us for even going out to begin with. Yeah, you know. um, absolutely. I think, yeah, a lot of the time it does come back on to the woman, you know. Why were you walking home alone at night? Why were you walking home drunk? Why were you that intoxicated? Why, yeah, um, when really it should be, well, why wasn't there the support there to make sure we got home safe? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and I really feel like... Abuse begins during childhood, and we're not hearing that discourse for children, are we? Or what would they say in my case? You know, what they might blame it. They might say that my parents had that responsibility, but I was targeted in the park by men as well. Mm. So, you know, like it's just everywhere. You, yeah. You know, you can't really escape it or hide. Um, there's not much you can do um, in that sense. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to find a safe place as as a female. So, mm. yeah. A taxi driver stuck his tongue down my throat one time. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah. So bizarre. So yeah. bizarre. The yeah. stuff that happens, the things that, you know, you don't talk about because people don't want to hear that as well. Do you really want to know about some weird experience where some, you know, taxi driver, like, literally did that? A lot of people don't they don't want to know. You know what I mean? So it's, um, it's really important that we do have these discussions as a community and we've got opportunities to let people know what is going on, you know? Mm. Absolutely. We're, we're hearing from Sarah, Jane and Claire. Chloe, Chloe from Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia. Uh, on In Psychedelia this afternoon, this is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, uh, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377. Or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. ThreeCR.org.au is the website uh, if you would like to donate. ThreeCR.org.au forward slash donate to the Radiothon. I'm still a little bit off our target. Uh, and if you do donate, uh, make sure to make it out to in Psychedelia because that that just helps us read out, reach our own little target as well. It's nearly there. Um, part two of the discussion. 
Yeah. Uh, so we're here having a brief uh, conversation around uh, women, drugs, and the vulnerability that women experience when they're using drugs, if that be recreationally or otherwise. And uh, we're all quite affected by the recent death of Eurydice Dixon. I know that we've spoken about it already, but, you know, um, I think it's just something so important that, you know, we all need to understand is a really big issue and we need, you know, we need a lot of people to get on board. We need our, our sons, our fathers, our brothers to listen to what we're talking about here because we're not going to get anywhere if we don't have you on board. How have you found this, Jane? What Are your experiences similar or different to Sarah's? Quite similar in a few aspects, um, especially in terms of, you know, as time progresses, my understanding around mental health and the links between my substance use and mental health um, and just my understanding around co-occurring disorders um, through education and self-education has increased and that has acted as a massive um, protective factor for me, I believe. Um, So, yeah, I really do believe that um, the relationship between mental health and substance use are not in the way of the common discourse that um, substance use causes mental health, but rather the other way around. I think it is really important, it's very complex and individualistic and greatly impactful. For me, when I was a teenager, I started to sort of develop anxiety and depression. Um, And I guess at the time, my understanding of it was quite low. My literacy in the area was very low, even though I had experienced mental health problems within my family, mainly depression, um, because it wasn't overly spoken about among my peers. It wasn't really something that I found much understanding around. Um, And it was, it's something that is always going to be present and will impact my um, substance use when I do choose to engage in it. I think with the increased knowledge that I have now, and I've had the privilege to be able to seek counselling, to learn about mental health, to seek higher education, that that has been such a protective factor and that doesn't mean that I my mental health is gone it's something that's day-to-day it's very much on a spectrum much like substance use and I believe that there will there is and there will always be a correlation between my mental health status and my relationship with substances um, and I don't necessarily think that it's always negative. I think now that I have more education on the matter, I have supports, I have understanding of what my mental health reactions actually mean, that I then do have more coping mechanisms that maybe once upon a time going out and using substances or drinking was a patch and now I have more long-lasting 
sort of methods to, you know, address these issues when they do arise. One of the themes that's come up in talking to both of you around um, your mental health and your pathways in and out of substance use and abuse has been, I guess for want of a better word, like a there's been a social component or a belonging sort of community involvement. If you have anxiety, obviously that is infinitely harder than if you don't. Um, and I guess this comes to this idea of um, having a sense of community or a sense of belonging and how people create that or cope when they don't have that organically. You know, if you've, um, you know, had a start to life where you've almost been deprived of it. What role does this need? This, you know, we, we have an inherent need for community and belonging. We all do. And so if we don't, if we're deprived of that for a variety of reasons, what might, what role might that have in explaining some people's substance use patterns? That was a huge element of my anxiety. Um, so as I was saying earlier that I grew up, you know, quite an anxious child and then I turned to cannabis use as a, as a means of um, dealing with that uh, distress and, um, and it seemed like such a, you know, easy band-aid fix for me. Um, but, you know, the mental health element didn't just arise on its own. And I know that for some people uh, it may, you know, you may grow up in a, in a very great um have a very great upbringing and still develop mental health issues but for me um you know my my upbringing um contributed a lot to my mental health issues and also to um the nature of my relationship towards substances and their use so the community that i grew up in uh was um like lower class, lower socioeconomic status. Um, and that just, that doesn't just mean that I grew up uh, in a family that had a very low income. So it was on selling benefits and in housing commission. A lot of people uh, do that, but they may, may not be also involved in this, in certain cultural groups within that class. So mine was a very kind of, uh, considered a very deviant class. Uh, there was a lot of criminal activity around me. And uh, drug use was also a normal part of life. So much in the same way that culturally we see having wine after a stressful day is fine. For me, culturally, you know, I saw parents and friends using, you know, drugs to cope. And uh, there was also that very uh, real separation of my community, uh, if you could call it that, and mainstream society, or what we use used to call them uh, normal people. So even then we had this idea of otherness that we weren't normal people. And um, growing up, you know, experiencing transient homelessness. So, you know, that being that we uh, never stayed in one place too long, uh, usually less than three years. And uh, we moved, uh, we lived in a lot of um, emergency accommodation and um, transitional housing. Uh, and that was also largely due to uh, the police constantly raiding our house um, for drugs. Um, and because of that upbringing, that also made me quite separated from my peers. And, you know, growing up 
uh, even going to kindergarten and, uh, you know, standing up in front of the class and saying, you know, this crazy thing happened. The police came to our house. Uh, my brother was yelling at them. We were going to try and steal one of their guns and rescue my dad. And I was told, you know, then by the teacher that that's not the kind of thing that we talk about in show and tell. And what that subtly kind of says to me is that my experience isn't a valid thing to share. Um, that other children's problems or concerns that uh, are quite common to more mainstream society are acceptable. But my experience was not acceptable and um, it was something that I should keep to myself. Um, so then I felt very locked out of institutions um, that most people come to rejoice and feel a sense of belonging to. So during school, I was always marked um, going into school as a new kid constantly and then also not being able to afford uh, uniform or clothing that other kids you know things like tamagotchis uh, school camp uh, not being able to afford you know extracurricular kind of activities like sporting groups or um, you know like martial arts or anything like that so I never really had that integration with uh, peers of my own age and I wasn't also like I also wasn't allowed to play with kids um, that weren't just middle class as I said like there's still that distinction between uh, you can still be lower class but belong to a different kind of cultural background as well so even then you know I was marked as a bad influence and in a sense I was you know I was breaking and entering by age seven into people's homes um, mimicking drug use by you know smoking tea leaves out of a bong um, but also at the same time you know those behaviors didn't just uh, come from nowhere, um, being unable to integrate and play with uh, kids from different cultural backgrounds or different economic backgrounds, I was then kind of segregated to other kids that were also deemed bad influences. So other kids that also grew up with histories of poverty, neglect and abuse or trauma or crime, other kids that were marginalised. So we were, you know, segregated from the get-go. Um, so clearly the the community I belong to really just existed so far out of mainstream society that I didn't also benefit from the values and norms that other people grew up with and ideas of how to cope with distress, ideas of how to access things like the health, health services or even the justice system uh, growing up in a kind of criminal kind of deviant class where you're constantly segregated from mainstream society, you begin to have a real resentment toward police uh, and toward uh, social services uh, because they were always punitive forces in your life, not uh, not supportive. Um, whereas for, you know, for most people, they're supportive uh, influences. They're, you know, they're a safety net, but for us, they were not. And so there was a real kind of restriction, uh, cultural restriction in uh, dealing with them. You know, you couldn't talk to the police. Um, and you certainly weren't engaged in, you know, your town community either. Um, and so because of that isolation, you know, those institutions that kind of normally provide those safety nets or interventions meant that it's very easily for people like me to slip through the cracks and end up homeless. Um, you know, I myself ended up homeless by age 14, living with a much older abusive uh, drug dealer. Um, and then that continued on, uh, meaning that my community then also consisted of other people within that same segregated deviant uh, community. 
um, who would come, you know, to buy drugs from where I lived and that kind of thing. So, um, and then you just don't see yourself as equal either to other people deserving of the same um, kind of institutions and um, rights that other people have. Um, so, yeah, I really think that uh, in that, you know, that, that, service, that service provision is really vital. Uh, into integrating people back into a sense of belonging and community as well. So Kat Daly worked for YSAS, which is a youth support and advocacy services. Um, and she led a study of more than 1,000 young people aged from 8 to 25. And in that study, she found that most women presenting for substance abuse treatment had a history of sexual abuse and self-industry. So understanding that relationship can help um, service providers understand like the long-term effects of trauma and create programs more suited um, to the needs of young people. For me personally, you know, you've heard that growing up I had a lot of issues with mental health and um, this really stemmed from generated vulnerability and abuse. Um, around the age of uh, 12, I had been groomed by a much older predatory male who was around at our home and by 14 my father had left and parental abandonment was one of the major things that had come out of this study for a lot of young women and then having dependent relationships with older men who supplied them drugs were also common themes for young women in the census. So these girls including myself had backgrounds of abuse um, and that really seems to be a recurrent theme that was happening um, in these studies. Now, when I learned of these studies, I was 26, so this was about five years ago. And at the time, I didn't know that my experience was very common. I had had this crazy life with, you know, a lot of different um, predatory men targeting me. Um, it was quite mild during my childhood and it wasn't until the age of 12, 13 with that much older predatory male who had basically kept, just kept me from 12 to 20. Um, and after dad left, he was all I had. I'd tried refuges, um, but I'd ended up struggling with my mental health and substance abuse and I didn't know really how to handle it. And so, you know, there's this saying, the be it's better the devil you know. Um, you know, I was still a target for gendered abuse in these refuges. So it just seemed to make more sense to me to go back to this um, predatory male. And he kind of became my captor, I guess, you know, in a form of Stockholm syndrome. When I read about Kat, when I met Kat and I read about her research, I read story after story of young women who had the exact same story as me. And I didn't know that that was so common. I thought that I was just this weird lone freak who had had this crazy experience and that perhaps it was my own fault. Um, and when I learned that my story was really common, particularly for young women from low socioeconomic backgrounds who find themselves vulnerable, who find themselves targeted because of their vulnerability, um, that really emboldened me to speak out. So at that age, I commenced court proceedings against this man. And I stood up, not because I wanted to punish him, 
necessarily and not because I was hoping for any kind of outcome. I stood up because we so we need to stand up. I needed to stand up for my own rights and to say that I was deserving of the same <clears throat> rights as everybody else in my community. And I was hoping that this would also inspire young women to also believe that they have the right to feel safe and they have the right um, for this not to happen in their lives. And, you know, this is kind of, I guess, was my me too moment. And, you know, all of this obviously links into substance abuse issues. Um, And links could really be made to various gender issues from this, including the gender pay gap. I'm still quite locked out, um, you know, quite a few years later, even though I have an undergraduate degree, um, even though I'd commenced honours, I'm still quite locked out of the workforce. I've holes all through my resume for, through uh, due to homelessness um, and mental health and substance use. And so I struggle, you know, to maintain employment. Um, and even now through the court case, I've had to withdraw from my honours course and I've had to take breaks from various community groups and volunteer positions that I feel passionate about. And I'm still battling substance abuse, a, a resurgence, I guess, of that re-traumatisation. Um, so, you know, it all kind of still links back in um, together. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, this Me Too movement is a really great movement in helping women feel united on this front when it comes to substance abuse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think as our discussion today has really highlighted um, the importance of lived experience and of personal stories of individuals um, who engage in substance use. Right now, it's so important to listen to the personal stories and lived experiences of the women in your life. Um, Please stop telling women not to be angry and just listen with compassion and do your best to support. So I think that community has always been a massive influencer in my life. Um, The community that I was brought up in with my parents was always very open about drug use, sexuality, and very accepting of people from all walks of life. Um, they, this community wasn't necessarily the norm. It was, um, yeah, sort of alternative culture. My parents took me to festivals and bush parties from the age of two, and this community really shaped me into quite an outgoing and inquisitive child. Um, and although this was the first introduction I had to drug use and I was too young to understand or really know what any of it was, the drug use that surrounded me, I do not believe negatively impacted me, um, in this community and much in sort of the communities that I move in today. Drugs are used to enhance experiences, open people up and bring people together in um, sort of community and festival settings. Um, And when I was about 10, my family moved to about an hour out of Melbourne to a more sort of slightly rural small town. where really that sort of was my first experience of a community that was 
really different from my own that I'd experienced so far. It was very much uh, middle class and working class, small town um, with a lot of tradies and farmers and almost quite a patriarchal community in the way it was structured um, and the sort of social interaction that I had as a teenager. This is where I first started engaging in substance use and I think it really sort of showed me and I have to acknowledge my privilege here coming from a um, middle class, fairly well off background with very supportive family coming into this community and feeling like a real sense of not belonging and the sort of negative associations I then had with being in that community now really sort of highlight that the isolation and lack of support that sometimes these communities experience really do impact outcomes with things like substance use. There was lots of drinking and lots of young kids hooning and engaging in dangerous behavior through boredom. Um, and I don't think that there really was much motivation for them to break that mold. Whereas when I moved um, and changed schools, when I became older and I started engaging in sort of more the club and party scene. Again, as an adult, I realized that the sort of social groups I was moving in while middle-class, well-to-do, supportive backgrounds, um, they still engaged in what I believe many people would deem as problematic substance use with amphetamines, there was quite a culture of young people while using amphetamines to have fun and party and dance, they also used it as a method to maintain weight loss. And that was something I personally experienced um, in my late teens. And that really, um, yeah, was, in some ways quite impactful sort of that social scene where you know it is quite image driven and young people do um yeah really misuse party drugs and amphetamines sort of as a secondary way to maintain low weight and it is quite known and unspoken um and I think that it's something that, yeah, should really be more spoken about in young people because self-image at that age is everything. And especially when you're engaging with these new exciting communities where you can go out and party and look your best. Um, but in saying that, the community I've found myself in now, which really isn't far from the communities that I've been in from a teenager to a young adult, while people still do engage in substance use, um, it, I find that it's at a point where the community generally does have enough protective factors and education and supports and knowledge of access 
um, two services that it can be done in a healthy manner and that it isn't impacting areas of life that it, it shouldn't. Um, and that I've really found sort of home within this community, which is quite similar to the one I grew up with, but in many ways different. And I think, yeah, all of these experiences very much shaped who I am and also sort of shaped my relationship with substances and luckily led me to, you know, having some understanding and knowledge around, yeah, my experience. One of the things that struck me as you were speaking is the insight that you've both been able to shed on the diversity of people's motivations for using substances. You know, often the idea that all people who use substances are essentially kind of the same group of people on the same policies will suit them all. You know, clearly that isn't the case. You know, when you're talking about, you know, some people using substances who are, you know, young and wanting to maintain, you know, thinness essentially. And then obviously we have much older male who, you know, have been drinking alcohol for decades of their life. And I'm sure for them, the motivation is not, you know, thinness. And so the idea that people who use substances who are the same is, you know, is clearly incorrect, but quite problematic for a number of reasons. Before we wrap up, is there anything that, you know, you guys think, you know, is really important or could help to develop this understanding a little more? Yeah, I think I believe very strongly that a more holistic approach is definitely a more beneficial way to address substance use issues. Um, in saying that, you know, sort of people seeing that the drug isn't the problem, the problems are the problem. And quite often these problems are systemic, like Sarah said, such as isolation, low socioeconomic status, access to services, health literacy, education and support. Um, you know, it's not just the drug in isolation, so it needs to sort of be treated as such. Um, early intervention and frank information given surrounding drug and alcohol use um, especially in schools and in the wider community, um, I think at least in some sort of youth initiatives that are out there, the benefits of rank discussion around the effects of substance use um, and the benefits of educated use, you know, um, with discussion around pill testing and you know, more frank and open discussion amongst these communities to sort of increase the level of education and therefore the level of educated and hopefully safer use. Um, yeah, I think that we have to sort of recognize and acknowledge that this current system um, of pushing abstinence to young people doesn't work <laughs> um, and more youth uh, involvement 
in policy and communities and in saying that not just youth involvement, but involvement of people with lived experiences in the implementation of policy and practice, because um, I think, I believe very strongly that lived experiences are some of the most powerful ways of informing people on a matter. And lastly, in saying that, like many social issues, I really think that the problem of othering and creating polarization between, you know, substance users and non-substance users, or even within communities that do engage in substance use, um, people using bad or, you know, more heavy, scary drugs being worse than people who just dabble on the weekend. I think that that sort of polarization really just pushes us further from a place of understanding and compassion and really should be discouraged. Including people who policies affect seems to be a somewhat novel idea. <laughs> um, sarcasm intended there. And I'd like to thank both of you for being, you know, so honest and forthcoming with your own experiences. You've been hearing from Jane and Sarah sharing their experiences of drug use with Dr. Kat Daly from RMIT University. Please visit ssdp.org.au for more. So, um, like we were just talking about, um, I think polarisation is something that is quite topical of the moment because I've seen online and in a lot of discussion that there has been a massive polarisation between um, the female community and I guess the feminist community and um, a lot of males. But I just want to just sort of draw on the fact that toxic masculinity, which is what sort of breeds rape culture and a culture that supports the horrible things that have been occurring, not just recently, but for years and years, um, it may greatly affect women but it also affects men. Um, toxic masculinity breeds violence among everyone. It breeds violence against women. It breeds violence against men. And while the power imbalance really is there between men and women, um, it does affect everyone. And we've got to really, I guess, come together and sort of not let this be such a polarization, but a coming together against toxic masculinity as a whole. Yeah, I was really happy to see the ads um, launched recently by the Victorian government um, showing a call-out culture and how men can help assist in um, calling out these behaviours. I think that's a really positive step forward. Thank you to Chloe from Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia and our panellists this afternoon, Sarah and Jane, for sharing those stories. You'll be able to hear the whole episode again at 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Queering There is up next. Uh, please stay tuned and don't forget you can donate. 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And support Don't Punish on Tuesday. Look it up. Support Don't Punish Melbourne Town Hall. See you later. This is Encyclopedia. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.